Hey, Daniel, how's it going? Uh, it's good. It's been a crazy day. I actually bought a car today, which is always super fun and exciting, a little stressful. Uh, how about you? Um, it, it is crazy. Uh, it's kind of a busy day. Just working on projects. No car buying here. Uh, what type of car did you get? We got some uh, old Volkswagen like Golf. Uh, it's like a super, uh, just a nice car to get around town. Nice, nice. All right. It's like Tesla. Everybody I know is buying the Tesla right now. I'm like, uh, maybe it's on the list. <laughs> we need to buy Matt a car at some point. So, oh, all right. Well, um, this is episode five for our new listeners. Um, we just came off of kind of the great two-part episode uh, on the debate between RevCycle and IT. We called it the SmackDown, um, and those guests have agreed to come back. So uh, look for um, a reoccurring guest uh, theme spot in season two. We will be featuring that um, segment again. Um, all right. So uh, this episode is going to focus on the front end and um, of revenue cycle, and we'll start to mix up the space a little bit more as we progress throughout um, future episodes. Yeah, we've been doing a lot of prep for this one, lots of questions. I think today is going to be packed, so let's make sure we just get started right away and have time for our, our two guests here today, and let's just jump right into our Hot topic segment. Perfect. All right. Well, welcome to Hot Topics, everybody. Uh, today, we have two amazing guests joining us. It's my pleasure to introduce our first guest. He is an accomplished executive specializing in IT startups and spinoffs, um, business development, partnership, strategic marketing, sales, healthcare technology, and software solutions. He's the founding member of two successful healthcare IT companies focusing on improving systems and services to provide healthcare communication management. With over 25 years of experience in healthcare IT, it's my pleasure to welcome the Chief Business Officer of Vine Medical, Scott Overholt. Hey, Scott. You, welcome. Man. Appreciate it, Evan. Thank you very much. And Daniel, uh, it's great to be here. You know, anytime you get an opportunity to work with Patty Consolver, it's a good thing, especially when you're talking about the front end of revenue cycle. So excited about our topics today. Excited to be here and look forward to the discussion. Thanks, Scott. Um, yeah, I have the honor to introduce our second guest, uh, Patty Consolver. Yeah, we started together our, pr pretty recently uh, at the same time at Wilshire. And Patty is our director of business and development with nearly 30 years in the revenue cycle. Uh, recently won the Miriam Blankmanship Award from Naham. Uh, so congratulations on that. And obviously a leading expert in the space in the healthcare and patient access space. Welcome, Patty. Hey, thanks, Daniel. Yep, we did. We started the same week. Um, we were we were mentor buddies together. So yeah, I'm glad glad to do this uh, podcast with you, Daniel, and Evan. Thanks. Well, welcome. So, Patty, you were sharing with us just recently, um, and just saw a presentation at Naham um, that I think you and Scott actually were on a panel recently together as well, um, talking about the changes that have occurred in the market and concepts. Um, and how organizations are kind of having to flip and change their business. Um, so we thought for this hot topic segment that we would kind of learn more about what's happening in uh, the patient access and front end space um, and hear both of yours and Scott's take on it. And then in, in a little later segment, we'll learn more about um, actually Vine Medical. Yeah, there were there were tons, tons of new um, ideas out there at the Naham conference. Um, really good ideas. I think folks had, you know, COVID really forced folks to to really think outside the box and come up with some, um, you know, solutions that we didn't think of before. Um, you know, technology was in place um, for us to really partner with vendors and, and come up with ideas that um, would allow us to to do things we, we probably wouldn't have thought of um, before on our own. Um, one of the things that was really kind of um, just really out there was a, a, a virtual uh, teleporting type concept, um, much more than just the typical kiosk, um, uh, you know, mobile check-in type concept. It, it was allowing us to, or allowing the, this hospital system, the, um, the capability to, um, 
uh, bring their staffing um, together where, wherever they were, whether it was at home or um, in a remote area of the hospital, but they were able to just really register patients wherever they were um, and teleport them to another area. So if it was a, a small rural hospital, they could just register in one area of the hospital, um, all their patients, you know, five miles down the road or wherever. It was, it was just kind of a neat concept. And I think um, Vine kind of has that same similar concept kind of in, in play today. Um, so Scott, you might be able to talk about a little bit more than, than what I'm kind of explaining, but it was just kind of a neat idea because it was the patient could pre-register ahead of time um, all electronically. So you never had to talk to anybody on the phone. So it was, you did, did it through the MyChart portal um, through Epic. Then did all the, the signatures, the, the payment, everything was electronic. Then the patient came in and then this whole teleporting capability happened. So Scott, what, what exactly was that that we saw? Yeah, you know, Mayhem was super interesting uh, this year. As Patty said, a lot of innovation. And, you know, you've got a lot of dynamics that are happening in the market, right? You've got the whole marketplace coming out of COVID. If you look at the statistics, hospitals are really struggling right now. Margins are way down, even but even to lower than pre-pandemic uh, conditions. And really, some of the struggles that we're seeing are not only our margins down, but also the the personnel, the the human resource, uh, and the staffing struggles that hospitals continue to face seem to be driving a lot of this. Um, you know, a lot of this activity, a lot of this innovation, a lot of this, how can we do more with less? And what Patty was talking about is, you know, the concept of, you know, engaging patients, um, you know, remotely, right? So it, it is, it starts with the self-registration, um, which, you know, allows the, the, the patient to actually take the responsibility of registration through an electronic system that's remote. There are some offshoots of that that we're also working on that are cool, and it's very much in line with what Patty was talking about, in that <clears throat> there are <clears throat> situations where patients need assistance, right? So a completely, totally, you know, virtual uh, experience um, won't cut it, and they need help from a coach, from a, a registrar, whatever it might be. So we're working on technology, a concept right now, um, for lack of a better word, called teleregistration that allows basically a remote coach to appear on the screen to help a patient through the, you know, their registration. A perfect example, and we've seen this in, at HCA emergency departments is one place that we know that it's been uh, deployed, um, where you, you, you have a normal um, in-person bedside registration that has an in-person coach, right? And this is now able to be replaced by a remote, virtual, live person to help them walk through the steps, the document review, the image capture of their ID cards and, and um, you know, insurance cards uh, to be able to capture electronic signature, you know, remotely from an iPad or a tablet. Um, to be able to process payments right there from that same device, uh, all with the help of a coach. So that's one of the things that we saw um, at Naham that was, you know, a new concept that's being driven by the economics of the day and just the situation um, that hospitals are facing. Why it was kind of interesting for me was because, you know, from a management perspective, you know, when someone called out sick, you had to scramble and try to find somebody to, you know, call in and have them, you know, get dressed, come in and provide that coverage. Whereas here, the, the example they gave is, well, no, what you can do is just um, teleport that person to that to that site. And now you're providing someone um, coverage from a remote location in another area of the hospital. And it was just it was mind blowing. It's like, wow, this is pretty cool. Um, you're able to cover more more areas of the hospital with less staff. Um, you know, we were thinking more, you know, in line of remote pre-registration and remote this, remote that. But 
it was never on my radar to say remote registration, you know, that, that wasn't there. And so that was kind of neat for me. Takes it from being pre to actual live registration. Yeah. So like yeah. patient in the ED, they have COVID like symptoms. You're leaving a wow in the room and right. you just remotely pop up on the screen and you're like, how are exactly. you doing? And start interacting. So I think that's cool. Um, does it pick up where like the like where the patient left off? So like say I was pre-registering through my chart and I didn't get it done, but I don't want to have to have all those same questions again when I come back in. So right, it already it knows. Very yeah, cool. it was integrated with Epic and the Hello system. You know, Hello and all the, those pieces. So yeah, it was great. Right. Sounds like it was a very interesting. Um, conference can for some of our listeners like myself and Daniel who you know I've had a little bit of the front end in my uh career um can you guys give a little bit about um background about what Naham is and how um you guys got involved and in, and in how it, it partners with um the front end sure Naham is the National Association for Healthcare Access Managers um it, it's been around for a very long time um i've been um on the board for about 20 25 years um i've been uh in a lot of the different positions i've been a past president uh past membership chair um my most recent position was the executive um uh, delegate position um which uh was i oversaw the delegate regions um, those, those type of positions. Um, it's a great, great networking op- opportunity. Um, I love collaboration. Um, anybody that has ever worked with me knows that uh, I love to collaborate, love to share ideas, share information. Um, I think we're only as good as information sharing that we, we get from each other. And so um, just the networking is just un- unbelievable. If you, you know, why reinvent the wheel when you can share it? Um, and it's just great. And then going to those conferences is, is great um, as, as well. And so, uh, you know, COVID was awful because, you know, you couldn't go to those conferences and meet with everybody. And so just getting back together. And again, this last year was just great, this last conference. Um, but yeah, Nahum is just like, you know, just like Nari and everybody else, you know, the, the other conferences, but it's, it's, it's a good opportunity to get with everybody and um, uh, just collaborate. Yeah, it's, you know, my thoughts there are um, it is a fantastic organization. Our company companies have been involved uh, in NAM for, I guess, over 15, maybe 20 years. Um, and there is no better place in healthcare if you want to if you want to be with the people on the front end of revenue cycle that are making things happen, that are innovating um, and that are face, you know, dealing with challenges that they face. There's no better place than than a NAHAM conference. And what type of people go to NAHAM? Is it really just like folks in hospitals and vendors, or is there, yeah, is there it's, a it's, broader group? Yeah, it's it's all the front end um, patient access folks. Um, it, it's it's definitely yeah, your leaders in front end patient access. Uh, we've got the um, uh, certification classes with the the certification, the um, Cha and the Cham certified healthcare access um, manager and uh, associate um, uh, certifications. And um, yeah, so anybody on the front end goes to those. Thanks for giving a little bit of background for our listeners. Um, future episode, everybody, uh, we actually have the Naham current leadership joining us as well. So um, to dive in a little bit more of how they're partnering. But speaking of partnership, I mean, I you know I know that you both have had the pleasure of speaking together and also working together on projects and implementation. And since we're talking about um, advancement here in the front end of the space, how how is it taking from with even COVID change? You know, looking at moving to this you know virtual uh, this virtual patient access person. How how are how's the rest of it expanding outside of just even like the hospital setting? You know, looking at it from a clinic or an ambulatory type setting as well. You know, are are they leveraging the same t- type of technologies and implementations, or are they? trying to do their own spinoff and, and kind of set a clinic aside, you know, being able to provide wait times and things of that nature at the same time. Yeah, go ahead, Scott. I think, I think I've seen, you know, definitely seen the, the same type of um, momentum happening with the clinical staff, especially with orders, um, faxed orders going into scheduling and, and uh, the like there. But Scott, you probably see it more so than I, than I have. Yeah, you know, I, I was going to say, 
the there was a there was a movement that was beginning before COVID for revenue cycle employees to begin to work from home. Actually, Patty is one of the industry's pioneers years before COVID came. Um, I know that Texas Health Resources had 500 employees that could access our solutions that were working from home, at least part-time. And we were beginning to see that movement um, across the country. There were a couple drivers that that were causing it. One was as, you know, as hospitals began to consolidate, right, and space became a premium, uh, health systems had a decision to make. You know, do they buy, do they build, do they rent, or do they consider a work-from-home uh, program? Uh, as as the, the thought leaders in the industry began to push that way, those hospitals facing those decisions began to, to take note and take action. Um, so there was, you know, we had documented over a thousand um, hospital employees just using our systems alone years before uh, before COVID, and it was be- beginning to be a movement. Then you had COVID come, right? And all of a sudden, it was just like this mass exodus where it was a requirement, put a huge amount of stress on hospital IT departments, on HR departments and on the individual departments themselves in revenue cycle and in other areas. Um, it's very interesting with the, with the, the labor challenges that hospitals face today, work from home has become a benefit for them, right? And it has given them a, a larger workforce and a, a more available workforce to choose from. Um, we are specifically, Evan, getting to your question, we are seeing some of the same from the clinics um, and the surgery centers, et cetera, especially those that are owned by hospitals, right? Because they've got the infrastructure, they've got the consolidation, they've got the teams uh, to be able to, you know, to be able to push them home. They've got the, the scalability, they've got the systems in place, et cetera. So we're definitely seeing that happen. The, the issue is, is the... The folks that were not as prepared when COVID hit is that they they sent the folks home, thinking that you know it would be um, it would be easy to send them home without having that foundation in place. And so now that they've sent them home, they've had to backpedal and and make sure that they've got the policies and procedures in place. Um, they've got the um, infrastructure in place to make sure that they can sustain what they've started now that they've got them at home because the metrics are there. They They've proven that you can work from home, but we've got to make sure we've got that infrastructure that it's in place that they can sustain that that durability there. Yes. Were there any things that you tried to transition to an at-home environment that just like didn't work or that you were we were trying to spearhead and just found that there is some need for in-person or was everything a successful transition eventually? No, I think there were things that you, you really needed to have, you know, you needed to have it in person, like I know there were some things in the the billing office, um, like with mail correspondence, you know, you definitely couldn't do that from home. Um, So there were things that you had to find, you know, well, how do we do that in person? Um, Yeah, there's things that the patient still needed some of that uh, touchy feely stuff. Um, So we needed to have some financial clearance type folks back at the the hospital. Um, But the, uh, the pre-registration definitely in the insurance verification staff could work from home. That, that was not an issue at all. Um, How did, so, so I know like coming back from like an operations background as well. So I was over insurance verification and pre-reg and we had a core team, even we were moving to work from home. I mean, our primary estimators were able to work from home already. That was kind of routine pre-reg, hit or miss. I mean, you know, we always staffed one person in our pre-reg department to be on site so that they could pick up the printed things that needed to print it, print. Somebody needed a, you know, hard copy of that receipt that they paid for their um, point of care service payment or upfront, you know, copay portion. And um, we didn't have a centralized mailroom. That was like my big push, like, hey, we got to figure out how to do this. So we're not not having, you know, everything go to each floor to pray, including claims yeah. and things of that nature. But for pre-reg, 
How did it work for doing like, I, I don't know, my pre-reg department and insurance verification department dual covered so we could split staff between the two departments as needed. But somebody always had to be on site to fax. They had to fax the daily census to those insurance companies who would not take an electronic notification of admission, right? So how did we, how did, how did you conquer that? Or were you able to do it, figure out how to remote, remotely do it? We remote fax through Vine, through through Vine and write fax. Um, so that was all done through the computer system. So that was not an issue at all. Oh, nice. Okay. So I did, I mean, that is, you know, one of the technology components. I think that, you know, definitely getting into a future segment here um, to cover, because I think a lot of organizations, I know when we were reaching out through HFMA and other, uh, you know, groups, nobody knew how they were doing that, especially they were all looking at, at solutions there, but not nobody had implemented it pre-COVID. So everybody had a I had a team of two that sat, you know, a complete opposite side of the floor <laughs> during COVID uh, so that they could use it and had dedicated fax machines for that kiosk space for them. So um, it, I think it that's one of the components. I know we struggled as well when we look at remote or looking at virtual assistance with, um, you know, kiosk, self-kiosk components, keeping them clean, keeping them sanitized. And COVID brought that even more in a highlight. Did Patty, you know, how did how has others through Naham talked through those and like shared their instances from an operation experience? And then Scott, you know, from a technology experience, what what have you seen your company and other companies starting to roll out to assist with, you know, kind of that patient experience and then also that preventing additional cross-contamination infections? You know, I've seen I've seen uh, lots of different presentations on the kiosks, and um, you know, different hospitals have had different um, different uh, outcomes with the kiosks. And really, it's 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 how well your upper leadership has pushed that kiosk experience um, and supported that rollout. Um, you know, if, if you've got a good um, backing and support system behind, you know, your 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 process, um, I think you'll see good results. Um, and but it, it goes with anything that you roll out. Um, if, if you if you stay on it and, and work towards that metric, then you're going to get those positive results. But if really you put it in place and you don't really monitor it, you don't you know really. Uh, follow those metrics, then you're not going to see the results. But um, we've got, we've seen some where they've got high numbers and you've got, you know, staff that sit there and they go through and they clean the, the, the machines after everybody. And you've got volunteers that are signed up to handle that. And they've got processes in place and really focus on that whole operational process. Um, and you've got good numbers to support that, then you've got a good process in place, but then you've got others that really don't. And you don't, you've got the numbers that show that you don't really have a process in place. Hopefully that makes sense. But, um, you know, I saw that, you know, five, 10 years ago with palm vein scanning, everybody was real excited about palm vein scanning. Um, and I, I had, a well, we were going to roll it out, you know, hospital system down in Orlando had great numbers They had you know, hospital, you know, support system in place and everybody loved it. And, um, you know, but when we try to roll it out, we just didn't see the same numbers because we just didn't have that same push behind it. And so the same thing's true with kiosks. You could have hospital A who really, really loves the kiosks and hospital B doesn't, and you'll see the same, you know, don't see the same results. So. Yeah. I think even larger healthcare organizations, right, are seeing that amongst their own hospitals right. or geographic right. regions that they're serving within those hospitals, right. within their areas too, like rural, rural areas, not so much adoption of it, even adoption of my chart accounts and things of like exactly. that nature, comparison exactly. to more metropolitan areas, so. But to answer your question, you know, we've, I've seen some have, like, their volunteers have some type of a schedule that after every, you know, second person they go in and have a cleaning process in place or some type of protocol in place to make sure that the the tablets are clean or the kiosks are cleaned out and you know, just whatever process works with it you know for that process but yeah and then evan about your technology in question there um for the remote staff the what we found the keys were is given the remote staff the ability to be entirely paperless 
So nothing needs to be printed, nothing needs to be handled. So like, for example, electronic fax or electronic interface with another system, um, all that needed to be paperless. No, no, they couldn't print from home, right? Because PHI and all that. Second thing, second big thing was given management the ability to be able to monitor everything, their performance, you know, their throughput, their productivity, everything um, remotely. So it didn't matter if the team was in the office, half the team maybe was in the office, half the team was maybe at home. They could monitor their performance and, and productivity just as if they were in the office. So those were the two big components, paperless, secure, and then the ability to monitor. We are at that mark uh, to take a quick break, and we will be right back. Claim Capital is a team of ex-Epic staff focused on preventing denials. Instead of showing what was denied, which is the standard for other solutions available today, Claim Capital pinpoints why claims are denied. By training machine learning models on an organization's claim and remittance data, Claim Capital can identify the causes of denials and recommend changes in EHR build or workflows to prevent them from happening in the future. With a completely HIPAA-compliant infrastructure, no software implementations, and a zero-risk pricing structure, organizations can quickly and safely recover lost revenue. And we're back. All right, time for my favorite segment. Uh, and this segment is the debate. And we're going to discuss all sorts of things. Traditionally, this covers industry trends, out-of-the-box ideas, or topics that get you thinking. And I think today we have a special one, Evan. Yeah. So, hey, Scott, as we're just wrapping up the conversation um, about Nayham and kind of what you guys were seeing in the industry and where things are headed, um, we want to continue the conversation about automation and see how Vine Medical is leading um, in this space and learn more about you. Okay, great. Thank you, Evan. You know, the Vine Medical's focus is all about helping our clients really deal with those two situations that we talked about to begin with, right? Um, pressure on margins and staffing challenges that they face. Obviously, you know, work from home, remote work is one way to deal with it, right? That, that solves at least a portion of the personnel issues. But another way is through automation. And our company spends a lot of time, um, you know, today we have 800 hospitals and health system clients, but we also have a lot of prospects and partners in the market. And we spend a ton of time in patient access departments and other revenue cycle departments doing workflow assessments. That is basically looking at their workflow and looking for, for areas where there might be some improvement, might be some good ROI, might be an opportunity to, to start chiseling away a little bit at that margin deficit that they're all facing. Uh, automation is a fantastic way to do that. And it is very prevalent um, where manual tasks reign in some of these departments. Everything from, um, from dealing with forms. So this could be a fax, it could be a PDF, but it's basically something where an agent at the, at the hospital has to look at a form and transcribe or index information off of that form manually. So they're looking at the form and they're basically typing in data from that form into a record that ultimately ends up in the EHR. Today's technology allows you to be able to automate a lot of that through, um, you know, AI and ML or um, uh, form recognition, other technologies that exist today. A lot of those transcription um, processes that are typically done manually can be automated. Um, and, you know, they can be verified uh, after automation or based on confidence levels they can just push on through. We have one client today that um, has taken the transcription of physician orders and literally over 60% of them are 100% automated, never require a human touch. Um, so that kind of leads to another automation that helps in the process, which is integration, right? integrating this data with other systems. A lot of times when folks are pulling information off of forms, the next step that they have to do is then get that information and the image of the form over to the EHR. All that can be automated as well. So integration with other systems can help 
um, workflow downstream become now automated, build work lists, et cetera. Um, there, you know, if you keep going down the, down the chain in patient access, another one is the outreach uh, to, to patients, right? So today, if you walk into a lot of hospital patient access departments, there will be a team that will be manually reaching out to folks that have a procedure scheduled or another order um, to, to get these things scheduled, right? Well, with today's technology, you know, not just auto dialers, but also text messaging, um, it's easier than ever before to automate that outreach, to engage the patient electronically um, on their own device, to give them options like, do you want to talk to somebody live or do you want to go to our scheduling portal um, and do it yourself, right? So it gives us the ability to be able to not only automate that manual process, but then now we're engaged with the patient that can allow us to be able to automate the next step, which is, you know, providing them an estimate uh, and maybe even doing an upfront collection of their copay, right? All, all basically automated. So those are a couple ways. There's another one that's really interesting too, and it is, it's voice analytics. Um, you know, you have a lot of verbal communication still going on in healthcare, right? And likely always will be going on. Um, financial counseling sessions, um, things like this, where, you know, the patients need to talk to someone to understand what their options are, what their obligations are, and things like that. Um, with the average hospital doing thousands of these conversations a day, it's difficult for management to be able to assess quality and compliance of these communications. But the tools exist today to be able to automate um, that analysis. Um, I've got one really good example where we have a client um, who requires a specific phase during financial counseling at upfront collections. And she is able to run an automated query through those thousands of vo voice communications, whether they're face-to-face -face communications or phone communications, whether they were done, you know, at the facility or done remotely, um, all of them can be analyzed and then she can get a report back that, that um, provides her with compliance levels and also identifies which agents may be struggling um, with the specific phrase that's required there. Is it only, um, so, hey Scott, in that, it, I mean, that's, that sounds intriguing. So uh, do they have like a um, mic, if I'm on site, is it like a mic that's at their desk and it's just, they hit a start button or how, how does that work? I mean, I totally get like the phone component, right. But like, how does the in-person portion, um, there's a, work? there's a microphone at the PC level it's on, uh, and it's, uh, driven by the keystroke on the PC. So when the, um, when the registration starts, it, it, uh, starts recording. Oh, cool. Let me give okay. you an example. Of, let me give you an example too of something that helped me with um, from a leadership perspective. Is we um, um, had a chief medical officer that um, one time that had a concern, uh, rightfully so, that the registration was not um, um, was not capturing the primary care physician correctly. Um, and you know, historically, you may not be able to prove that yes, the staff were collecting primary care physician, but by capturing um, your, your patient journey um, uh, by recording that and, being, and also capturing this voice analytical piece, I was able to then run a report by capturing what percentage of the time was the staff asking that question, who is your primary care physician? And I was able to then substantiate my claim that yes, 98% of the time, the staff were asking that question. And I wasn't, I wasn't asked that question again, because I was able to then satisfy that answer that I was able to, you know, we were asking that question. Um, so it's just great information to be able to have at your fingertips to be able to say, hey, are we asking these questions? Are we asking the ethnicity? Um, if we implement a new scripting, are, do the staff fully understand that scripting? And are they really, um, uh, are they implementing what we ask them to implement those type of things? So it's just, it's good to have that information. I was going to say the compliance factor, it has to be absolutely just like staggering to be able to see firsthand and immediately yeah. are people being compliant with yeah, that, X, Y, or that, Z. 
that's the huge ROI on it. Um, like even with the rollout of the um, uh, No Surprise Act uh, this last year, you could really go in and be able to pull that information and make sure that with the price transparency piece, that your staff were fully engaged and asking the right questions. They were they were following the scripting that they should have been following. Um, you, you really were able to provide that information and you were confident in those answers that you, that you had, so yeah. Um, I was fortunate to come from a system where we we really did. We recorded that whole financial journey from the point of scheduling to um, uh, the central billing office to the final bill. So it was great because you'd be able to go in and um, if there was a patient complaint, you'd be able to find out exactly where that that um, opportunity existed in that that stream, you know, did it happen in scheduling? Did it happen in pre-registration, registration, insurance verification? Where did where did the opportunity happen? You know, exist um, because it was not only did it um, did we record it, it went to the patient records, so we were able to go into Epic and be able to pull that from that patient account because that's where it was saved. So it was great. And Scott, you're you're a chief business officer, so you're probably up to your point earlier. You're always thinking about margins. Um, when the context like a conversation with a client or they're thinking about this automation, where does where does that really drive home or what kind of like brings a light bulb to these folks as they're thinking about margins and automation? Yeah, you know, there's, um, as I mentioned before, there are a lot of tasks that require, you know, manual human effort today that can be automated. Um, hospitals are already so stressed with, you know, finding the people and finding the right people that every time they're able to automate, it provides, it opens up, you know, that person to be able to do something that's more revenue generating, right? Or if they have a vacancy, maybe we can fill that vacancy with some automation. So ultimately, it improves performance um, and outcomes thereof, which could be, which often are financially related. And it lower, lowers cost because the, you know, the automation is much cheaper than human intervention. There's obviously still a lot of places where, you know, automation, um, where, where human intervention is required and needed and preferred. And this just gives hospitals the ability to put focus on those with their, with their human resources. I think, um, speaking of that, how, how did your compliant, your corporate compliance team um, and legal team, you know, guide you guys, guide operations from the standpoint of, okay, now we're recording messages, you know, because I could see from an operational span standpoint, like the fear of these being, you know, able to be accessed if somebody did say something offensive or, yeah. or what it might be. I mean, of course you're like scrubbing and you're looking for those, those instances as well to provide coaching and mentorship, but you know, how did they cover it? And then on the flip side, how did, how did you get your team to be comfortable with this analogy and concept of big brother, you know, constantly watching and hearing and, and seeing? Yeah, that was, that was a, those are some really good questions. Um, and it was a big, big, all of it was a, a, a big ordeal. There was a lot of things that we learned from compliance. Um, definitely one, of, I'm trying to think what to take first, because there was a lot of good things that we learned from compliance. Um, um, a positive that came out of um, the compliance piece. Um, one thing, um, in patient access, I don't know if you remember, Evan, you know, like whenever uh, consent forms are signed and let's say a minor came in and you had to get uh, two signatures because the minor came in, we yep. never had to do that. We didn't have to do that anymore because you they were recorded. So if you um, called the mom on the phone, you didn't have to go find a nurse to get that second signature because now you had it recorded. You just had to put the trace tracking number that was an epic and have that signed and put the trace tracking number down. So that was a big win for us. So there were some wins that we would get out of this. So staff liked some of those wins, um, but um, some, some drawbacks a little bit were that you, we could not, um, we had to put together definitely a policy in place, a compliance policy. So some things that we could not do is we could not email recordings because they could be sent wherever. So you couldn't just email a recording to this doctor um, because he wanted to listen to a recording or to this department director because she wanted to listen to a recording. 
um, what we could do is come into a conference room together and listen to our recording together. So we minimized how many people could have security to, to this information. We, we safeguarded security um, and made sure that just um, those that needed to know, you know, the need to know basis security measures were in place. Um, so we had a very tight um, security um, policy around the compliance piece. Um, staff, we had to have a, a conversation. They, they signed a, a form that explained that all their conversations were recorded. Their personal conversations needed to take place on their personal cell phones uh, that need to be happening, you know, during their break times, you know, uh, lunch times, which needed to happen anyway, that did, did need to happen during, you know, regular um, times when they're registering patients. Um, so they, they understood that. Um, and, and it was for their protection as well. Um, and, and after a while, they really realized that it was really for their protection because uh, there were times, um, the majority of the times it did pr protect them. If there was a patient complaint or a, um, a complaint from a physician or whatever, um, a lot of times it protected them. It, it came to their defense. Um, so they liked it. Um, uh, you know, uh, the majority of the time it was a he said, she said, and, and it, it worked out in their favor because um, because of that recording. Um, so yeah, all the staff members signed a form saying that they were going to have to um, um, uh, uh, be recorded. Now, something that's different though in the state of Texas versus others, like in, in Florida and other states, you know, state, some states have a, a recording um, regulation that both parties had to be aware of the recording. And so there's some hospital systems that had to inform the patient that they were recording. That's why when you call, you'll hear like a message saying that, you know, your phone may be recorded for training purposes or whatever. In the state of Texas, only one person has to be aware of the recording. So we did not have to inform patients that they were being recorded. Um, so we did not have a, a anything notifying the patient on the desks like um, a hospital system may have that. I think um, Scott may be able to tell us of some of the hospital systems that have that, but I, I do know that there are some hospital systems that have shared that they've got notices and whatnot saying that they're reporting, but hopefully that answers your question, Evan. Yeah, it does. I mean, I know in Oregon, only one party is needs to be previewed to the recording, and that could be the person doing the recording yeah. as well. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, um, for my state as well. I mean, it would be easier to to do and not have patients concerned. But there are times that I would have loved to have that technology as a director yeah, with a patient complaint to be like, okay. Yeah, just safeguarding the, um, yeah. the information. You know, it was really interesting too, because, um, you know, the, the way this really started was, you know, recording our, our insurance verification calls with the payer um, and making sure that the the payer information was, you know, what they what they authorized was what they paid and being able to overturn uh, denials, that type of thing. And then we were able to branch out into pre-registration and scheduling and that type of thing. But then um, we started using these in call labs with staff. And, you know, if I wanted to um, bring to the attention of a staff member, you know, hey, listen to this call and see what your thoughts are with this call, um, you know, First of all, the staff member would probably get on the defensive because, you know, I'm bringing something to their attention and they don't really want to hear it. But when you go into a call lab with their peers and let them listen to it and they all start, you know, analyzing the call and take the supervisor out of it, it's much more effective. They all start analyzing the call themselves and they really start understanding what they did that they should have done differently. And, and it was much more impactful um, and made a, a bigger difference to the outcomes. It really did. And so those call labs became much more effective. And um, we did those more often. Um, we would always have a positive and a, an opportunity call. And um, those were great. And the staff really seemed to like those. Scott, how did you, how do you transition the technology also into um, being able to transfer patients out for them to do like their own credit card information, right? With all the payment components of, pay, of the front end as well, having to collect patient payments, but needing to keep credit cards, you know, confidential where you can't record that because that is part of the federal statute, you know, how, how does the technology work with that for our listeners? Yeah, very good. Good question, Evan. So, as far as 
recording a call. You know, there um, are PCI compliance rules that that state that you can't record, you know, credit card information. We've worked really closely with um, the, the EHR vendors to be able to automate as much of this as possible. So, for example, if we have a user that's on an Epic screen making a upfront collection with a patient and the call is being recorded, um, as soon as they put their cursor in the in the credit card field, it stops automatically stops recording. So we have some, you know, automated um, ways to be able to deal with PCI compliance um, that that, you know, take the take the burden off of the user to be able to you know, to have to pause and resume uh, where it's done automatically. If they're in a situation where, you know, they don't have uh, access to those types of systems, they can do a manual pause and resume there. What's the, the regulation like in that industry and like keeping up with that? I know like we just, Evan and I were working on something else with like CMS requirements that are coming out every year. It's burdensome for hospitals to have to like just go through thousands upon thousands of lines of new documentation. What does that look like for the PCI space and whatnot? You know, just in general, um, that's one of the places where we can really help because we build those safeguards as much as we can um, into, into our software solutions. So for example, if when you're dealing with CMS, you have a time limit, you know, our, our software can start the clock for for our users and if it hasn't been satisfied to be able to remind them that, hey, this is due or you're going to get dinged, right? So anywhere we can, Daniel, I, you know, we'll, we'll put in safeguards like that uh, as best as possible. Yeah, that's really neat. I imagine that there's, there's so much automation that's being requested by CMS these days that yes. um, there isn't always a software solution or Gets the, the burden gets put on the patient if a hospital just goes really quickly to try to push something out. Um, I can see there's definitely a benefit there. Yeah, there really is. And, you know, CMS has, over the last 10 years, has um, uh, really expanded, for example, the ESMD program, which, in fact, this still happens a lot, where audit requests, requests for supporting documentation and additional information uh, for authorizations or denials, um, would come in the mail, right, with a with a certain amount of time to be able to respond, and providers would respond by compiling all the documentation and mailing it back, right? All that over the last ten years has become has become more uh, electronic through the ESMD gateways, uh, ADRs, and the responses can now all be submitted electronically, um, and you know we've got a huge amount of volume going through that electronically now too. It's just another, you know, example of automation where, you know, you're taking a super manual process and now making it at least a little more electronic. What is one area, Scott, as people are thinking about, you know, who might not have full automation? Because there are smaller health systems out there, even with COVID, like they didn't go 100% remote um, or even be able to turn some of their teams remote because they couldn't afford the technology. But what is the one thing, you know, as people look for moving more software integration in to help support workflows um, versus taking over full workflows for their areas initially should start to consider when reaching out to a vendor like you or even just internally starting the, the conversation? Yeah, good question, Evan. I think our hottest one right now has to be with um, the whole uh, form recognition and pulling information off of forms. You know, if you look at the way orders, for example, are processed today, there's a significant number that are happening electronically, right? Um, that could be through an epic install that's been that's been sent out to um to owned physicians or supporting physicians in the community, but there still is a significant volume uh, that's not connected electronically. And, you know, it's due to many factors. Uh, adoption is certainly one of them. Um, financial is another. Um, uh, opposing, for lack of a better term, non-complementary systems, right, that don't talk 
And in fact, because of the competitive nature of the systems, they're likely not to talk, right? And so you've still got a lot of forms that are coming in uh, visually to the hospital, electronically most of the time nowadays, but still visual. And they require that transcription and that indexing. And that is one where it's an easy win, right? That is the first one that comes to mind, but taking it on down the line would be the integration of that data um, into the EHR, right? Just automating that process is an easy win for for patient access departments. Um, We've got now examples of bi-directional integration going back and forth with Epic to reconcile um, orders that come in where there's no patient that yet exists in Epic. Um, that used to require some backend manual reconciliation that we've been able to, we've been able to automate completely um, with Advent Health, which is a 51, um, this is fairly new, a 51 um, hospital system out of Orlando. But, so that's fairly new, but that saved, a, that saved a significant amount of time. So it's really the incoming process and then the integration with the EMR and in Advent's um, situation, we're literally able to, to have the folks processing the next step, which is scheduling. They're scheduling off the exact same workflow in Epic, whether the order came in through Epic or whether it came in through a fax or another system. So that step, you know, we're able to basically integrate the workflow of the electronic orders and the form for lack of a better term, orders into the next step being just one single workflow. So that that's a, that would be my that I think that's the hottest one right now as far as helping hospitals to automate. Awesome. Well, we need to take another quick break, um, and we will be right back. Fine Medical serves a growing base of more than 800 active hospitals and health systems nationwide. Their best practices are hardwired through technology solutions, proven to help hospitals achieve sustainable top performance. Their well-published results include improving financial performance, physician and staff alignment, patient experience, compliance, and patient safety and quality measures. Learn more at finemedical.com. That's V-Y-N-E medical.com. And we're back. Now it's time for the Wilshire Lab. Yeah, and as we transition there, um, to give everybody an idea, in each episode, we explore questions submitted by you, the listener. Uh, This week, we have one question. um, And Scott, I just want to say thanks for that huge in-depth knowledge uh, transfer there on where people should, you know, might start considering initially um, in the patient access or even just in the paper realm of any part of revenue cycles. So, um, we could bring you back again, I'm sure, to continue the conversation um, for uh, future episodes. Um, so let's transition over to that Wiltshire Lab, Daniel. All right. So our one question for today, I think we're probably sick and tired of hearing about this topic because it's been on our forefront for the last year. But now that we're implemented with price transparency, I'm curious, Scott Petty, how have you all seen this help patients engage with their care? Like what steps have, have we seen from price transparency just across the board? I think they've become um, more informed for sure. Um, uh, they definitely, yeah, they definitely become more, more informed. Um, they, uh, they're financially prepared. They research their payment options. They, um, they're able to select the, the right payment plan. Um, they can make the determination whether they um, are going to uh, have care or where they're going to have care. Um, you know, prior to price transparency, they would uh, have care, receive their EOB, um, and then find out how much it costs. Um, and now they, they find that out prior to, um, and it eliminates that surprise. So, um, um, so definitely they're more, more, more prepared to have the, the service today. Yeah, I know I like it when when I know what I'm getting ready to spend before I spend it, right? Um, for sure. And, you know, tr- price transparency and the ability to share that information pre-care is, you know, it's, it's almost like another step in that engagement and another important part of that 
the ability for us to engage patients electronically these days is super important, right? Um, for all the reasons that we've talked about, but price, price, price transparency is definitely, you know, an important component of it, but it also builds trust, I think, with the patient and the family, and it builds trust in, in additional steps that, that, that engagement may have, you know, the, the, the following step may be a, a, a copay payment that happens, um, could happen right there um, online or, you know, a, a, a follow-up scheduling uh, visit or, um, you know, a link to the patient portal to get whatever additional information they might need. Um, so that the, the engagement portion of it really, it, it almost helps complete the picture of patient engagement, right? And I'm excited to see where it goes as well. I remember when price transparency was first announced, people were scrambling for a solution, just like, what do I do? How can I set this up? And I think there was a lot of solutions that were made to just fit the requirements from CMS. And to your point, um, Scott, just like the idea of engaging with the patient and providing that full picture journey, I'm, I'm curious where that goes. So people will expand upon what the CMS requirement created to make something maybe a little bit more engaging and fun for the patient. Yeah, it's been fun, you know, because there's a lot of data that's available that, you know, that we can help be the, the medium for communications with patients and with providers, right? So we don't provide any cost estimations, but we can certainly be the, the transporter of that information and make it easy for the patient to engage with it. Um, and that's just one of many examples of that kind of data that's available these days. Uh, that can be shared to further engage the patient. I think it'll definitely be interesting to see and keep a pulse on how much is going to even impact the front end of revenue cycle across the board more so and how integrated health systems are going to have to figure out how to do better estimates and better transparency for all patients, even for non-employed physicians. I think that becomes the big question, right? I know for myself, I just had a procedure done and got a hundred dollar lab cost. And I'm like, wait, I, I, I'm in network for where my services were at. Why are you charging me an out of network price for a pathology report? And technically you can't. So now I had to know, you know, no, but if I'm not an informed consumer of knowing what the regulations are, most people are just going to pay that hundred dollar pathology report. So it, I think it'll be interesting to see how, more we get out the communication and then how health systems are going to become probably responsible for even auditing their out of network provider groups that they're contracted with to make sure that they're processing claims appropriately to their, to the patients that they're serving. So. Yep. Good point. All right. Well, that is it for us today. Um, Daniel, any final thoughts? Not, I, I, I uh, come from a billing background, but it's always exciting to hear about the front end. Uh, and I, I know that we're uh, talking about automation a lot today. And so hopefully maybe we'll get some questions uh, come in that we can uh, talk about on an upcoming podcast. Absolutely. Well, Scott and Patty, thanks for joining us. Do you guys want to plug uh, how people can get in contact with you? Well, definitely they can email me at uh, the Wilshire Group, uh, p.consolver at thewilshiregroup.net. Um, definitely you can reach out to our LinkedIn, uh, thewilshiregroup.net um, LinkedIn. Um, yep. And if you'd like to contact me, it's scott.overholt at vine. It's V-Y-N-E corp, C-O-R-P dot com. And you can find us also on LinkedIn and on Twitter and even on Facebook. So look forward to hearing from everybody. Perfect. Well, Daniel, Patty, and Scott, I think that's a wrap for us today. Bye-bye. If you liked today's episode, continue to join Wilshire Wednesdays. You can follow us on LinkedIn or find us on Twitter at Evan underscore Wilshire. Daniel can be found at Daniel underscore TWG. The Wilshire group is at TWG Health. 
for us on Facebook at the Wilshire Group or on our Instagram at Wilshire IT Revcast. Remember, if you prefer to watch, come check us out on YouTube at the Wilshire IT Revcast YouTube channel. If you have an inquiry, want to share your thoughts, or get additional information on a topic, email us at the Wilshire Podcast at the Wilshire Group.net. The best way for you to support this podcast is to rate, review, and subscribe. We'll see you next time. Bye bye. The Wilshire IT Revcast is hosted, produced, and engineered by Evan Martin and Daniel Bianchini. It is executive produced by Gretchen Case, Hank Smither, and Spencer Thielman. The Wilshire Group, experience you can trust, results you can count on.